Hello and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 88. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you doing there, Kevin? I'm doing okay. Good, good. First up today we'll be speaking with director William Dickerson on his new film The Mirror, which hits video on demand this Tuesday. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before jumping into a feature review of Zero Charisma. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new on video on demand, and DVD and Blu-ray releases. Let's kick things off with a conversation with William Dickerson on his new film, The Mirror, which is hitting video on demand this Tuesday. Will, thanks so much for taking some time to speak with us. We're talking about The Mirror, so I was thinking we could just start off with just having you describe the film a little bit. Okay, cool. Well, when I talk about the movie, I often ask people, do you know what a life streamer is? Um, a fraction of the people who I ask don't know, so let me just explain it. A live streamer is someone who films themselves 24-7, um, uh, usually with laptop cameras or web cameras, and streams the, um, the footage online, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is that these are people that live their lives online. And my, um, my writing partner and I have been fascinated with, with a character like this for a long time, um, and we felt, you know, why don't we, why don't we write a movie about it? Um, it's sort of part documentary, part fiction, um, and uh, we did. And basically, just to give you the gist of the, the story, is that this, we follow this live streamer. I play uh, a guy by the name of William Dickerson, very similar name to me, mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, uh, I film him, and his, he's a live streamer, but his thing is recreating uh, scenes from famous movies. That's what he does. He posts them online. Uh, me being a filmmaker in the movie, I notice that they're not really well done, and I offer my help as a filmmaker to make them better. We go on this journey together, um, and I find there's, that there's a there's a connective tissue um, that holds these scenes together, and they, they have to do with troubled relationships with, with family members, uh, specifically a father. And I, I, and I find out through more intense um, interviewing with, with Taylor that um, he, he had this traumatic memory in the past, deals with his father, and... I feel like all the clips that he's done kind of are trying to get at that. So I suggest why don't we why don't we write that scene from his cast, hire someone to play his dad and film it. Uh, we do. He posts it out. He posts it online and it becomes a, a big hit. Uh, and then later on, we we find out that that's not that clip isn't what it really seemed like. And I I can't really say too much more else. I give away the, the end of the movie. Yeah, we don't want to give any spoilers away. So before <laughs> getting a little bit more into the themes of the film. Uh, was this made before or after your movie Detour? Because I noticed in the film, Taylor mentions that it, it the film starts in 2011. So I was just wondering what the timeline is here. Good, yeah. Um, I actually started filming it while I was making Detour. Um, and part of it came out of that kind of frustration I was having. It took five years to make Detour. Mm-hmm. Um, three, three years to actually make the movie, and then another two years to... Uh, sell it to find finishing funds and to get it uh, distributed. And ultimately, we had a fantastic distribution deal and it played theatrically and, and on demand. Um, but I was kind of sick of just playing the Hollywood game and waiting for the right opportunity and just having that take so long. I, I, as a filmmaker, I wanted to make something else. So I just started to make The Mirror. And what was cool about it was that the subject matter uh, was really perfect for uh, consumer devices. So it was something we didn't have to spend a lot of money on. We could film a lot of it on the iPhone. At that at that point in time, the iPhone 4S just came out and it was uh, 1080p video capabilities and it was kind of revolutionary as far as phones went with with their video recording capabilities. So it started out, let's just start shooting this on an iPhone. And then it, then it 
expanded from there. And from that point on, it took about two years. So I started about a year before Detour came out and then finished it after uh, we wrapped up Detour. And, and so this obviously is kind of a satirical look at live streamers. And mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is, like, do you feel that people that engage in this type of behavior are all missing something in their lives similarly to Taylor? You know, it's a good question. But then isn't everyone missing something, right? Mm-hmm. Because we live, we live in a day and age right now where it seems like our online personas and our online recorded lives are somehow more important than our own lives. I mean, look at Facebook, right? And how many, you know, the term selfie. I mean, I, I think that, you know, now, uh, no one heard of that term a couple of years ago. Now everyone's taking pictures <laughs> of themselves. They're obsessed with, with broadcasting themselves online all the time, right? So Taylor's just an extreme version of that, right? But I'm trying to extrapolate that from what everybody else does. Because I think anybody can kind of relate to that, you know, not maybe not to that extreme, but they could relate to the, to the seed of why he's doing that, right? Because I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something that um, helps with our, our insecurity and make us feel more confident about ourselves. It's also kind of a way to edit our realities. Like we can't, we go out on the street and, you know, have conversations where we can be guarded about ourselves, but we can't really control uh, our persona as meticulously as we can control it online. We can have a whole Facebook page. This is, this is who I am, but it's only who you are. You're only telling the world what you want to tell the world about yourself, right? It's sculpting your image. Right. Um, so Taylor's the extreme version of, of that. So in the film, Taylor is, as you said, he's really open to the world. He's, he's telling, he's documenting every kind of aspect of his life, yet in the same time, he's, he's very closed off, so much so that he doesn't even reveal his last name. Uh, what what yeah. do you think makes someone that way where they're open about seemingly everything yet at the same time they're very closed off well it's a good question i think um you know like i said we're only as open as um we portray ourselves to be right so i think that's indicative of someone who's hiding something right Mm -hmm. and as a dramatic character um like if he was open about everything um then there wouldn't be that much drama to delve into, right. right? So I wanted to sort of to create a character who is kind of a contradiction. Yes, in one way, he goes out there, he's an open book, I am Taylor, this is who I am, take it or leave it, but he is only Taylor. Like in the movie, when I, when I question him about the last name, he's obviously guarded, right? And he comes up with excuses. So it, that, that's the kind of character that interests me as a filmmaker, someone who seems like on the surface, oh, I know this guy, I can read this guy in and out, but actually underneath the surface, there's a lot more going on, and that person on the surface really isn't who he is. Um, so basically, that's how the movie starts, and the journey of the documentarian is to kind of crack that nut. Like, I, as, as the character, I know, I, I know there's more than this to meet the eyes, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get at it somehow. Now, the, the character of Taylor, is, is he modeled after anyone you know, or is it more of an amalgamation of how you look at life streamers in general? I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, certainly, if I'm taking the extreme um, example of a life streamer, it would probably be, be someone like Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was interesting about this project is we, my writing partner, Dwight Moody, and I have been working on this thing um, the past couple of years and actually writing it with, uh, with Taylor in mind. Now there's the, the person who plays Taylor in the movie is also named Taylor. Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, and another pun I'll throw out here, and we were tailoring it to, ta- <laughs> to him um, quite literally. Uh, so it's a lot of Taylor is Taylor, right? Because I want people to, I don't want to confuse people, but I think there's a lot of reality in this movie, and there's a lot of truth. That's why I say it's kind of part documentary and part dramatic fiction. So if there's anybody in the world who this is like, it is actually like the real Taylor. Um, there are portions, parts of him that are, um, that were portraying truthfully in the movie, and there are parts that were written and rehearsed. Um, but I'm intentionally trying to skew reality by using real people playing real, quote-unquote, real, real roles themselves, and also hiring actors to play certain roles. As much as possible, I want to try to flip reality on its head. That's make it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And keeping keeping with that, the film is described as being metafictional, where the lines between mm-hmm. what is real and what isn't is kind of blurred. When you were shooting Correct. the film, did you have kind of a concise vision of how each scene would be laid out, or was it more organic, like in the film itself? Uh, yeah, it actually tended to be more organic, which is kind of um, not the way I usually make movies. I, I, I When I make a film... My pre-production process is very, um, very specific and, and detailed. For instance, detour, I storyboarded everything. Like, everything was laid out. Um, I knew every single beat of the movie. I worked on it with the actor for several months. Um, so I knew the movie, knew exactly what it was going to look like when we went in to shoot it. Um, however, with the mirror, uh, I, I definitely had, there were some scenes that were, that were written like script. There's some scenes that were more just outlined. Um, and as far as actually filming the shot, I didn't storyboard anything. Uh, we kind of went in there with a lot of cameras. Taylor had the GoPro on his head most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So we take the first his first person point of view. I would sometimes have a camera, either my iPhone or a flip camera. Then my uh, director of photography would either have an iPhone or uh, the Canon 7D, and we would just kind of go in and feel it out and make it kind of organic. I, I I think that process I was inspired by like the way that Christopher Guest and like Larry David make their mm-hmm. you know shows and. and uh, and movies when they have outlines, they go in there, um, and it's kind of loose. But, but that looseness speaks to the material being being seeming more authentic, and more organic. I didn't want it to feel too staged. Um, I wanted to make it feel as close to being a real documentary as possible. That's why there are some scenes that are actually real moments, right? So I wanted to intersperse that and make sure um, that they they meshed as organically as possible. And so when you were creating the film, as you said before, you are, you yourself are one of the main characters. Were you yeah. m- more displaying a persona, or was that all you on screen? Mm. Wow, sort of like an identity crisis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, obviously there's similarities, right? I'm a filmmaker. William Dickerson is a filmmaker. Um, I, I have acted before and I actually enjoy acting, but I would definitely not consider myself an expert in that craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the character, I wanted it, I wanted the, the, the guidelines of that character to be as close to me as possible. So I didn't have to act as, you know, so it wouldn't be as difficult to act. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm doing what I'm doing. However, the, the character, if there's a difference, I would say that the character's a more cynical version of myself, right? So the idea is, and part of this is based in reality. The idea is that the character in the movie is very frustrated with, you know, he just spent all these years making this indie movie detour and he can't get it out there in the world. Um, then he, you know, he's about to quit, right? And then he finds this guy Taylor online who's recreating these scenes from famous films. And even though they aren't very good, 
he sees the passion in this guy. He's like, oh, you know, this this guy loves making movies. And this is what I was like a few years ago. Like, why can't I be like that again? So part of it's like, you know, Taylor's the opposite of, of William. Um, so the journey starts with William going to connect with this guy because he wants to, you know, reinvigorate his own passion, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, that, but that's like, for me, I relate to that. And I'm sure other filmmakers do. I mean, I didn't, certainly was, I would never, you know, me and myself would never quit, right? I mean, like, this is my mission in life to, to make movies. Um, but I felt that in, in the mirror, I had to have the stakes be a little higher and, you know, make William a little bit more on edge than, than I am in reality. So just to extrapolate a little bit, in the film, you do poke fun at kind of the Hollywood film machine several times, yes. especially with your monologue at the end of the film. And I was just wondering yeah. what what your thoughts were on the current state of Hollywood, especially or specifically for indie filmmakers such as yourself. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting time and a unique time. The industry is changing exponentially, right? Um, it's it's both sad and encouraging. Like in indie movies, the indie movies that I grew up with, like. Pulp Fiction, like all the, the boom in the in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. You cannot make those movies anymore. It's right. impossible. Um, independent movies um, that used to be made between five and twenty million dollars are no longer being funded. Um, not only that, but studios have pretty much erased their independent film divisions. Um, they're not spending anything less than two hundred million dollars on a movie, and they're making they're making less movies and spending more money on them. Mm-hmm. Um, which which kind of you know really lengthened the disparity between studio movies and indie movies. Now, the studio movies have gotten so big, and since there's no funding left for smaller movies, um, the independent film world has shrunk, right? I, I wouldn't even call, I don't even think there's an indie film market anymore. I, I, I would prefer to call it a micro-budget film market. It's just studio blockbusters and micro-budget movies. Stuff that's being made for under a million bucks, um, you know, which is which is Detour, right? Mm-hmm. And also The Mirror. Um but because if you think about it, part of the, what the mirror gets at is just the ease um, in which a filmmaker can make a movie now. I mean, just like the iPhone, for God's sake. I mean, H1080 HD video, you put a little mini Steadicam on that, it looks terrific. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, we don't even need indie financing. We can go out there, make the movie, and people are doing it. Uh, and what the studios are doing, they're just letting us do this, right? And then they see, you know, hundreds and thousands of filmmakers making these movies, and then they go to festivals. Um, the studios, you know, go to festivals as well, see which movies they like, and they buy them, and they don't do any other work. They just kind of pick them up in the in the end, which I, I can see it being a smart move from the studio, studio perspective, but as a filmmaker, that, that sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, especially when, when big-budget studio movies are becoming less and less original. You know, it, a lot of it um, are, you know, a lot of it's regurgitated from... Uh, from other movies, or reboots, or sequels, it's stuff based on a toy from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So, as an indie filmmaker who's making original stuff, it, it, it's frustrating. I know it's frustrating a lot of people. Um, I'm hoping that it, within a few years, due to the uh, popularity of these micro budgets coming out, studios buying them, um, that that what will happen is that micro budget movies will keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The budgets will keep getting bigger and bigger, and eventually that will rebuild the independent film world as we knew it. Um, but maybe that's just being idealistic. Well, I'm not sure. And I also think with uh, funding platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo and mm-hmm. stuff, that that could help the indie scene grow a little bit more as well. Because Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, it also shows that there is interest in that, that market for smaller budget films as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's what you know. Um, you know, studios look at movies being funded by Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and just just by the fact of a movie being fundraised like that, you the world can see. Oh, people are giving this movie money, so let's pay attention to this movie. So it already it, it one it funds the movie, and two it creates buzz about the movie before the movie's even you know being made, which which is great. Yep. Well, before we get into some plugs about the mirror, I just wanted to ask if you have any upcoming projects that that you have like kind of on the burner uh i have a lot of stuff um well one movie i i can't really talk about what it's about but it's going to be another movie starring neil hopkins who is in uh detour play the lead in detour um and we've been working very closely on the script and he's been developing his character it's going to be micro budget not as micro budget as the mirror um but micro budget nonetheless uh it has to do with um a uh, the reincarnation of a dead rock star. Oh, okay. Well, that, <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, and we, we we like it. Other than that, I'm working on a TV pilot um, uh, script for that, and uh, you know, just uh, I'm also writing a book about the making, actually, uh, the make not only the making of Detour, but how to make a micro budget movie in in Hollywood. Oh, uh, okay. So I'm hope, hoping to publish that later next year. And real quickly, I just want to say I'm a big fan of Detour. Like, uh, oh, thank you. As far as containment thrillers, like for some reason, I'm just really into those containment thrillers. And when I saw Detour, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is great. I was really into (laughs) that one. Oh, oh, thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate that. Did you see? uh, Did you see Gravity? Yeah, I did. Yep. What'd you think? What'd you think? I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, One of my one of the writers for for my site absolutely hated it. But really? I just, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't really buying his reasons for, for not liking it. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge Alfonso Cuaron fan. He could kind of do no wrong with me. Uh, did, uh, and the 3D was the best 3D I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw, it, yeah I saw it at the IMAX in 3D, and I was just, I was oh. kind of in awe the whole time. I was just like, this is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's incredible. But I just bring it up because it has, you know, not that it was like, you know, like detour, but it's similar survive one person surviving right, yeah i like those i like those films and it had similar beats uh, but done i thought it was very well done yep absolutely and just visually incredible like oh god the whole time i'm just like how did they do this i mean this is <laughs> mind-blowing but, yeah 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 totally so the mirror is it it's coming out october 15th is that right yeah next tuesday next tuesday all right and is that theatrical vod uh, we're going straight to VOD uh, through Vimeo On Demand, which was an interesting choice. Um, well, my, a friend of mine's movie called Some Girls with uh, Kristen Bell, Adam Brody, uh, Neil LeBute wrote. Um, they released it directly to, to Vimeo On Demand. It's been doing really well. And part of the, one, you know, one thing I learned from Detour is, yeah, I mean, we ultimately got a great distribution deal through Gravitas and then through Warner Brothers Digital Distribution. Um, but still, I felt like as a filmmaker, I, we had to push ourselves and, you know, get the PR done ourselves. Uh, so, you know, this time I was like, you know, why don't we just distribute it ourselves? And the 90-10 split on Vimeo, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, 1080p, uh, we can price it the way we want. In fact, we can price it lower because we have less um, fees to deal with. Again, do the PR our, ourselves um, and get it out there. And Taylor, you know, agreed and that's that's the route we're taking. So it'll be on Vimeo on demand and also uh, DVD through Amazon.com. Great. All right. Well, William, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to speak with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, William.
be sure to check out the mirror on Vimeo On Demand Tuesday. All right, let's talk about some of what we've been watching. I'll kick it off this week. I <clears throat> uh, started started the week with Much Ado About Nothing by Joss Whedon. Okay, okay. Mixed by up. Mr. Joss Whedon. I want to see this. So, Okay, here's you, the thing. What do, you, what do you got for me? I'm still kind of on the fence about it. Okay. I don't like Shakespeare. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, I, and I don't like Shakespearean language. <laughs> oh, the language is awful. So that right there, that's a big hang-up for me in this movie. Okay. Because it is, it takes place in in a modern setting, but they use the language of yeah, I, you know the I, original. I hate when they do that. And I knew that going in, so I I expected it, but I never. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to a lot of Shakespeare's stuff. So I didn't know this story. I never read it. So I don't, I didn't know anything about it. So it was all kind of new to me, but it just felt like a soap opera. Mm. Like, I mean, everybody's, it's so bizarre. Like these two people meet and they decide to get married the next day. And, and then it like, it just seems so far fetched and ridiculous. (laughs) And I know that, these are all things that I should be giving a huge pass to because it's Shakespeare. But a lot of it just seems so dumb that I was just like, all right, I'm not buying any of this. That being said, like for the first, maybe the first third of the movie, I was pretty disconnected from it. Like I was not into it at all. Yeah. And then all of a sudden at some point, I really can't say when, but I sort of got into it and I was, sort of enjoying it so Hmm. like i said i'm still kind of on the fence about it it's it has kind of a low budget feel to it i mean it was shot in black and white a lot of the shots look really nice but some of some of it kind of looks cheap some of the the transitions and the cuts look kind of amateur just not yeah sort of yeah i have to say like i'm completely with you with the that we've talked about it before i hate when they do shakespeare in a modern setting, but they keep the Shakespeare language. It's just automatically, it's awful. Yeah. But when, like it, that, but when I saw the trailer, this was like the first film that was like, hey, this might work. I might enjoy this a little bit. I think it kind of works. It, it kind of works. There, There's certain things that they do that, that Whedon interjects into it that make it more enjoyable. Like there's just these little subtle comedic beats that he puts in it that are really funny and charming and and they really add to the movie but sort of lightens it up a little bit yeah i mean i think that this play is a comedy i'm pretty sure it was one of his comedies yeah certainly not a tragedy so there there were it is a lighter it's not like you're dealing with macbeth or something so it's not but titus andronicus no i mean it's not uh it's not super heavy but no one's eating people? No, there's no eating people. Okay. Okay. It's good to clear up. Just just a lot of ridiculous drama gotcha. happening. <laughs> so I would say maybe it's a light recommend. If you're a Whedon fan, definitely check it out. They like, they already have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're a fan of Joss Whedon, you'll love this. Because he uses a lot of the same actors in that are in all of his things and Yeah. It, it feels very much like a Joss Whedon film. I believe it was shot in his house and in his backyard, which I got to say, nice pad. 
What a, very nice. What a dick. It's just him showing off. <laughs> Maybe. It's yeah. just him showing off. He, he, by the way, he looks like Soul. Yeah, he does. He looks exactly yeah, he, like Soul. Yeah, he looks like the rapper. So. I wonder if they're the same person. That'd be kind of funny, it would, but I've... It would be amazing if they are. I think they are. Okay, we'll say... We're going to say right now that they are the same person. Josh Whedon is the rapper Soul. Joss. Josh. Joss. Joss. I'm sorry. <laughs> soul. I'll just call him Soul. It's easier that way. So, yeah, I'm I'm still kind of on the fence about it. I gave it a 3 out of 5 on Letterboxd, but it that was just kind of an arbitrary number I threw out there. I uh, followed that up with Alice Sweet Alice, which was my Grindhouse Weekly Watch. Which this was a... What's the director's name? It's Alfred Soul. Boom. Yep. Where was he born? I don't know. Patterson. Oh, really? Holy shit, dude. <laughs> Everything is coming full circle. <laughs> We're fucking unraveling something here. <laughs> so this is a horror movie from 1976. <clears throat> Very young Brooke Shields is in it, which is probably the big thing that everybody talks about this movie for. She's like maybe 10 years old or so in this movie. So Mm. she looks, she's very, very young. One of her earliest roles. And it's pretty good. It it plays out very similar to an Italian giallo movie, but it it is an American film. Basically, it's about this (laughs) girl who they believe is murdering people. Basically, her sister gets killed in the in the beginning of the film which was a pretty shocking way to start a movie uh, it, like it starts off with the family getting ready to go to the daughter's first communion and then they cut to like in the church getting ready and then all of a sudden a masked in a very creepy mask uh she's wearing a mask and a yellow raincoat creeps up behind her and chokes her and kills her and then puts her body into an empty pew and lights it on fire. Wow. Okay. So it was a pretty intense way to start off a movie. Wow. And it it gets pretty it gets more intense from there. I mean, it's a pretty brutal movie. It's very violent. A lot of the kills are disturbing because the whole time you're thinking that is it this girl? Is it this little girl that's killing all these people? And you never really know i mean they do reveal it at the end but it's it's still a pretty fucked up movie wow and now it, it just i wanted to see if this goes any further alfred soul does the production design on the show castle oh okay which has of course nathan yeah was that fillion in, fillion yeah nathan fillion who is in much ado about nothing what the hell did you try this no i didn't Unbelievable. it is pretty amazing where we're going here with this i know but i want to see if we can keep going Okay, well, my next movie is called Forgetting the Girl. I think you might have a hard time linking this one up. I'm going to link the shit out of it. You might be able to put something together. This is directed by Nate Taylor, and it's a psychological thriller about a photographer who may or may not be a psychotic killer. Okay. This is actually pretty good. This It, it, starred Chris, it stars Christopher Denham, who probably know from Sound of My Voice... Oh yeah, but he was all—he was also in like Argo and Shutter Island. He does a great job in this, and it's—it's uh, it's decent. It's pretty good. Decent, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's—it's it's not great, but it was much better than I thought it would be. It's—it goes much deeper than I thought it would. Like as far as getting into this character, like the—the the main character is a very 
complicated character. So it was it was interesting to see how things would play out. The big problem I had with this movie is that there's just so much misdirection going on that at times it becomes very evident. Like it, there's certain things in it that you know are just there as a red herring. Mm. Like there's um there's a character played by Paul Sparks who's the landlord of the building where the main character works, where his studio is, and to my knowledge, the only reason for having this character is a is a red herring. Like he adds nothing to the movie other than the fact that you think that he might be the killer. Mm-hmm. And there's several things in in the film that happen that make you think like, oh, is that the killer? Is that the killer? But really, throughout most of the movie, you don't even know that somebody was killed. Like that's the thing. Like okay. you don't know that there was a murder. <laughs> You know that a girl has gone missing, and but you don't know what happened. Hmm. But it's it's still maybe a light recommend if you're into if if you want to see a pretty decent mystery thriller, it might be worth checking out. Yeah, uh, saw Escape from Tomorrow. This is one that I've been you've been really wanting you to were, see. Yeah, for you were a while. high on this one. Now, if you remember when I did talk about it, I said that I wasn't expecting it to be very good i just wanted to see how they did it mm-hmm. so it wasn't good uh-huh. I, I will throw that out there it's not a very good movie but it's still interesting to see how they were able to shoot almost the entire thing in in disney world and in epcot without getting caught or you know reprimanded and it, and it actually looks pretty decent one thing i will say is that there were some scenes that they used a green screen mm-hmm. for and they look horrible okay. like they look, it's so jarring when they cut to those scenes. Oh, because I hate when that happens. You can tell, like, immediately that this is a green screen. And that's a shame, but there's a lot of other stuff. I mean, it's a very surreal movie, so having the green screen stuff, some people may be able to forgive it because of that, where there's constantly things that are happening in the film that are not, quote, real you know, like he's having these hallucinations throughout the movie where there's just all this yeah. cr- crazy stuff happening. And it, it does get really crazy at the end. Like it gets very bizarre. He gets, I don't know, I don't think it's a big spoiler, but he gets something called cat flu. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's... Cat flu. It, <laughs> it gets really weird. Nice. But, ba- I, but basically... I mean, I'm very interested now. If you If you haven't heard about this it was shot entirely guerrilla style at disney world and it's about uh, a guy who's he loses his job while he's on vacation at disney world he gets a call from his boss who essentially lets him go over the phone while he's on a trip with his family and he decides it's their last day he's like okay i'm gonna just i'm gonna wait to tell everybody until we have this one final day at the park but things just go incredibly wrong for this guy (laughs) and things go downhill really fast and it's it's an interesting concept it's not very well acted the special effects work for the most part is pretty terrible but it's crazy because they they don't hide the fact that they're at disney i mean they show mickey mouse and disney characters and (laughs) a lot of the big iconic stuff there are some things that they blur out Oddly enough, one of the things that they blur out is Neosporin. Like, All right. he 
he cuts himself in one scene. He cuts his foot like really bad. And they there's a scene where they do a close up of a bottle of Neosporin and they have to blank it out. Okay. And there's a couple other things that they have to blur out. Makes you wonder why they didn't just get like an off brand. Well, they say, yeah, that's weird. I don't know why, but it could be because they mention it by name. Oh, okay, okay. Like, she's like, oh, did you go get the Neosporin or something like that? So they do mention it by name, but they have to blank out the logo. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, it's it's worth watching just as kind of a curiosity, mm-hmm. just to see this experiment at work. Uh, yeah, that's... That's what I'm getting. Like, I'm but very just, interested to see this. I know pretty much from what you're saying that I'm not going to like it. No, you won't like it. But, but I, ju- I just want to see it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth checking out just as kind of a, a curious thing, especially if you're into filmmaking, like, just to see what you can do, you know? Yeah. Uh, that That's kind of what's surprising about it. Uh, and then I saw Machete Kills. This was a disappointment. How? Big disappointment. I was a big fan of the first one. The first one I thought was like a, actually a genuinely good movie. I thought it was fun. I thought it was a really good throwback to the 70s exploitation films that I love so much. But this one is just a failure. It, mm. it, it's almost like they, they kind of did away with all the stuff that made it look like a 70s exploitation film. Like, you know, in Grindhouse, how they would have like the film degradation and the the dirt and how the the film would look grainy and old mm-hmm. and they just they captured all that stuff well like this movie just looks entirely too glossy and clean so i just uh i can't recommend it unfortunately like they used all cg in it like all the all the blood all the violence everything was all cg that's it. that's just terrible yeah it was so dumb and here's the thing Tom Savini is like one of the main characters in it. And, you know, he's a practical effects guru. So, like, why wouldn't they just use his stuff? Yeah. Or at least get some pointers from him. It was really bad CG, too. Like, it uh, it looked terrible. Just, like, I, I hate CG. I couldn't believe it, but I was actually bored throughout the entire movie. It was so dull. Mm-hmm. And I saw it with my girlfriend. She fell asleep twice. Not a good sign. Yeah. So I mean, it's not. It's not a good sign that it's really all you are is just like an action movie, like throwback type deal, just to entertain, and you can't get that down. Yeah. I mean, there was there were some laughs to be had. Like I thought Mel Gibson <laughs> as the villain was great. Like he was really funny, and it, it was just great to see him be like a super villain because you know that's <laughs> what he is in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But like there was there was one character called the Chameleon or El Cham- El Chameleon who was played by Cuba Gooding Jr., Walter Goggins, um Antonio Banderas and Lady Gaga. It was one character played by four people. That's that sounds amazing. And they start they start at, it starts as Walt, Walter Goggins. And I'm a big fan of his and the whole time I was like why can't we just stick with him as this character? Because the scene with him in it was great. But then, of course, when he turns into Lady Gaga and Antonio Banderas, Cuba Gooding Jr., that was all, like, just ridiculous. Mm. That's a bummer. Yeah, it, it was a bummer. Most of the comedy was just in the form of cameos, 
people saying like one-liners and people playing against type that type of deal yeah and it was it was a shame really it was pretty bad and they had one fake trailer before the movie but it was for machete kills again in space Mm. so that was that was one interesting thing that they did like the fake trailer was for actually the next machete movie and then everything (laughs) everything that we see is build up to that next movie that's pretty that's an interesting yeah. idea. So that that was kind of interesting and of course they did like the fake uh intros and stuff like they did with Grindhouse, but yeah. Other than those two things, nothing about this movie looked old or like a throwback in any way. Hmm. Uh, uh no, I'm sorry. There was a sex scene where uh Danny Trejo had sex with Amber Heard and there was like a big yellow graphic that that came up that said put on your 3D glasses now and then it went <laughs> it went the like the can the visuals like switched to this like crazy looking 3D effect so you couldn't really see what was going on that was kind of clever hmm. but hmm. unfortunately i can't recommend it and i know that i look i judge these kind of movies much more harshly than most people because these are these are movies that are supposedly paying homage or whatever to movies that I like a lot. So mm-hmm. I always criticize these more harshly, but I think that judging by what other critics are saying, it's it's pretty bad. So <laughs> uh, and then that's it. Other than Zero Charisma, so what do you got? The first movie I checked out is a Scorsese film that is not necessarily a Scorsese film. It's quite odd. This is uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore from 1974, which is directed by Scorsese, but this is entirely Ellen Burstyn's vehicle. Like She had complete creative control. She wanted to hire a young director, uh, talk to Francis Ford Coppola. He told her to check out Mean Streets, and she decided, she decided that she wanted Scorsese to direct Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. So this is essentially just... A film for Ellen Burstyn. Mm-hmm. That's it, and it's supposed to be about you know real woman problems. Which, when you watch the film, it becomes very evident that they completely fall or fail to capture that at all. Now, this movie is synonymous with uh, *Woman Under the Influence*, Cassavetti's tale, which does it much, much, much better. Uh, they were essentially uh, Cassavetti's film. The only way Scorsese would show Alice doesn't live here anymore at the New York Film Festival is if they agreed to show Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence. That way they got both of them in. And then, of course, Ellen Burstyn and Gene Rollins both got nominated for Oscars. Burstyn won for her portrayal of Alice in Scorsese's film. But, but, I mean, my God, if you watch both of them back to back, Gene Rollins just blows her out of the water. Because the film comes off as like a highlight reel. Mm. It's sort of like a, a very expensive resume almost like she does every single emotion throughout this film i guess to show like her wide range but at the same time it sort of makes the film feel disjointed it's all over the place and what what it's about is she's recently widowed she has a i mean the epitome of precocious young son and she decides to just pack everything up and move back to her hometown of monterey california she's currently living in new mexico okay Mm mm-hmm so that's a trip you can make in one day. Easy. She stops in Arizona, spends the rest of her money on a new wardrobe, and now they're fucked. Eh. Like, they have no money. 
and she has to get a job as like being a piano singer at a crappy bar because she just decided to stop and buy a new wardrobe. And that's supposed to count as real woman problems, which to me, it just, it, it's fucking ridiculous. But if you're able to just sort of ignore that plot point, it's, it's a pretty good film. And you can definitely see that it's a Scorsese film, like his directions in there. The camera work is great. Like everything that he does, the way that he sets up the shots, the framing and everything, it's Scorsese through and through. It's just, you know, the, the stuff that he's working with here, it's just completely out of his wheelhouse, but he handles it quite well. And Ellen Burstyn gives a, she gives a good performance. Don't get me wrong. But when you stack it up against Gina Rollins from Woman Under the Influence, you're just left scratching your head to why Burstyn got an Oscar. Well, not really, because this was made within the studio system. The other one wasn't. So, But overall, a solid film, and definitely one to check out if you're a huge fan of Scorsese. Just to see him, you know, sort of doing this director-for-hire type work, mm-hmm. but keeping his, you know, his signature direction in it. Yeah, and also, also, this was like, this was during the time that all these people were working together. You know, like Chris Christopherson and Diane Ladd and... Yeah, all these people, Jodie Foster, and in this. The, 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 yeah, Jodie Foster. I think this is actually like one of her first film roles, and I did not know that it was Ju, Ju, uh, Jodie Foster until someone said she. Hmm. Like I just, I thought it was a little boy, and then I realized who it was, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" Uh, but there's also a great cameo from Harvey Keitel, who a very young Harvey Keitel who at first seems like a really nice guy. He's, you know, trying to pick up Ellen Burstyn. And and then he just does like a complete 180 turn and just turns into the, this huge asshole that just go all out, just assaulting anything and everything that's around him, hmm. just completely losing his shit, which was just, it was crazy to see young Harvey Keitel just wrecking shit. And then apparently this is... Uh, the. Which, the spinoff for Alice, the TV show. Mm. So there's a lot of that towards the end where she's like working in the diner. You know, it sort of has even like a like a sitcom feel to it towards the end. Mm. But it definitely recommend it. <clears throat> it's good. To, it's nice to see, you know, Scorsese doing something different. Like I said, something out of his wheelhouse, but he still nails it because he's Scorsese. Of course. I mean, the guy does no wrong, really. I agree. Uh, the second thing I watched is The Awakening. And I am thoroughly confused as to the intention of The Awakening. It's labeled as a horror film, you know, scary film, supernatural, ghost story type deal. But I, like, none of that came across while I was watching it. Like, it, I don't even think that they were trying to scare me. There's a handful of jump scares, which inherently are, they're just lazy to begin with, right? But these are the laziest jump scares I've ever seen. Like, when they appear on the screen, there's no conviction behind it. There's no passion. It's like their intention wasn't even just, you know, trying to scare you. It's like they just threw them in in post. They're like, oh, let's just throw in a jump scare here. They want it to be a horror film. There's It, it feels more like a period piece about, like, World War One and survivor's guilt because, I mean, they spend most of their time discussing that than the actual, like, horror story. Yeah, that's a big part of it. And, but that's what I'm saying. Like, they seem to spend a lot more time developing that and spending time on that 
and they actually do the horror aspects of the film. That's why I'm like really confused. Because in my mind, I don't really think that this is a horror film at all. The only thing that creeped me out a little bit is when she's looking in that uh, that large scale of the house, and she sees like the dolls and everything of like the past day's activities, mm-hmm. like everything that happened within the house. Like the way they had that all set up was, you know, it sort of gave it like a creepy, creepy feel to it. Uh, it was a little unsettling, but outside of that, there's nothing scary at all. Like they don't even build it up. It's just, bleh. yeah, I wasn't too into that. The camera works great. Um, the acting is solid. You got Rebecca Hall, Dominic West, Imelda Staunton, and you have the little kid from uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. That yeah. looks like Hermie the Elf that desperately wants to be a dentist. <laughs> and that's all I can think of the entire time now that I see him. But it's I honestly don't think it's scary in any way whatsoever. Now, you saw this one, right? Yeah, I saw it. I didn't find it scary at all. No, and that's what I'm, I'm like. Is, was it that even their intention? Like, is this just bad marketing? I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's. I guess it's definitely a horror movie because of the supernatural stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of weird because anytime there's anything supernatural, it's automatically billed as a horror movie, yeah. even if it's not intentionally scary. It's just it's either a comedy or a horror movie. Like you can't have supernatural elements in a movie and have it not be categorized as one of those things. That is true. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what it is. But it is written by uh, Steve Volk, who's done a number of horror movies. So I guess that was their intention. Well, they just completely failed at it. I mean, maybe they weren't so trying to make it scary, though. Maybe they were trying to make it more dramatic. Like Maybe. I, I think that there's a lot of, like, horror movies that aren't actually horrifying yeah i mean it is one of those it's it's the type of film where someone's literally being haunted by their past yeah like that's that's what happens here but and, and i mean you also got to get past the massive plot holes because there's just a shit ton of them but that's the you know the execution that they're using here of course there's going to be plot holes right you know with the huge twist at the end mm-hmm. so you got to sort of ignore that as well it's just there's too much work to be done on the viewer's end to enjoy this film, I think. Yeah, I wasn't into it. Yeah, I was I was thoroughly disappointed. Like, I knew that it wasn't going to scare me or it wasn't going to be that great, but holy shit, I mean, it just it failed miserably. Uh, and the film that I followed it up with that was a little bit better was American Mary by the Saska sisters. Is that how you said it? Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, this film feels like it's made for a very niche community, and that's the the body mod community. Feels like this like this is their film, something for them. So on one hand, it it works, but I didn't I didn't get the whole um, like revenge tale that they like tied into it because they felt like two completely different stories, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they tried to tie them together, and I just I don't think it really worked. But I do have to say that white people are fucking crazy. Mm. The fuck is wrong with you white people? Mm. Body modification. Are you serious? And it, well, this is a th- thing now. Yeah, but this this isn't just like body modification. This is extreme body modification. Yeah. This is like whole other level plastic, mm-hmm. like plastic oh. surgery. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. Essentially, I, I should say when I say body modification, I'm, I'm already talking about the 
the the upper tier type. Yeah, stuff. you're not talking about like, like tattoos and piercings. No, 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 no. That to me, that stuff is just completely normal. I should, you know, tattoos and piercings. I mean, twelve year olds get that shit done now. But these body modifications are just. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. White people come up with the craziest shit in the world. Mm. They are so fucking bored with life. They come up with the weirdest shit I've ever seen. I have something uh, that you can look up. Type in bagel head. I don't. I, oh, God damn it. I don't want to do this. It's not, it's not an American thing. It's uh, it's an Asian thing, actually. But Well, yeah, Asian people, too. But type in bagel yeah. head. <laughs> oh, God. I'm so, uh, oh, why? Do you see it? <laughs> why is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. What is the fuck is wrong with people? I have no idea. There's the, the I'm looking at one guy right here that it's so big that his eyes completely shut, like he can't <laughs> open his eye. Oh god! Oh my lord! Oh, Jesus Christ! But yeah, back to American Mary. Yeah, bagel head is fucking terrible. There's no bagel heads in this film. There's a lot of other weird shit though. Oh, yeah. Um, but I I thought that uh, Catherine Isabel, who plays the main character. of Mary Mason, who's the, you know, trying to be a surgeon and then something terrible happens and then she gets into the underground body mod community. I thought she did a great job. Like, I liked her performance. She was great. Mm-hmm. But everything outside of it just didn't work for me, and especially the effects. Like, the blood that they used was just, it was terrible looking. Like, when she's doing the surgeries and, he, you know, she's cutting into the flesh and you see the blood pouring out. And I'm just like, Really? It's tw- it's 2012. You can't do realistic blood. It was so like watered down. It's sh- that 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 took me like that irritated me. That angered That's me. That's funny because I don't even remember like the thinking that the blood look didn't look real or whatever. Like at that. I mean, there's a, there's only a couple scenes where they show it, which is another weird thing that the, there's not actually a lot going on in this film. That's terrifying or unsettling disgusting type thing like i I thought i was gonna see some really disgusting shit yeah i mean like in when you when you look at these types of horror movies body horror a lot of times things are very unsettling yeah i thought i was gonna see some really weird shit like with um martyrs i thought it was gonna be that type Mm -hmm. of thing where i was good just gonna i mean it's body modification so i thought i was gonna see some really disgusting stuff but they actually don't they don't really show too much no, no, not really. I, I would say that it is... A, I think that it's still pretty unsettling. But Yeah, there is... I, I mean, there is a... When you find out what happens to the one doctor, like when you finally see him, mm-hmm. you know, you, like, you have an idea of what happened to him. But then when you finally see him, it's like, oh my god, it's so terrible. But again, white people, just stop it. Knock it off. Maybe it's Canadians. This is a Canadian film. Maybe it's... Uh... Maybe, I wonder. I wonder who is who's you know pushing the body modification type deal. I don't know. I, I don't really get it. The uh, the Saska sisters were actually in the film too. I don't know if you they they were the twins, yeah. correct? Yeah, they were the twins that, that had that weird sort, which was also odd. Like I thought, I thought it was going to be some huge epic type surgery, and then it was very underwhelming. Like what they had done, the procedure mm-hmm. that they had. I was just sort of like, oh, that's it? That's all they're getting done? So that was sort of a bummer. A letdown. I thought that it uh, I thought that it started off strong, but towards it slowly started to unravel for me 
Yeah, it, the yeah, it like started the, to fall apart. The end, I was just not. It, it felt like the end was just kind of shoehorned in because it just was so random and why well, I can't really give it a. I don't want to give it away, but it yeah, just, it felt yeah. weird to me the ending. Yeah, it wasn't a huge. It, yeah, the the further it went, the more it started to fall apart. I did like it did the, start out strong though. I thought it was a lot better than I was. I was thinking oh, yeah. going in. Oh yeah, like I thought. I thought this was just gonna be god awful i didn't think it was going to be good i didn't have very i didn't really have any expectations for it because i i saw dead hooker in a trunk after this so yes i do remember (laughs) when you if i saw dead hooker in a trunk before this i'm pretty sure i would have gone in with very low expectations now another thing to add to it i mean i'm a man but at the same time the wardrobe for Catherine isabel it's just ridiculous throughout the film. Like she's just constantly wearing heels, and it's just a, like an excuse to just put her in like well, the, the after skimpiest outfits ever. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. Like after her, after she develops her persona, that's like the whole thing. You know, it's almost like a Scarface story where she gets this. She develops this persona as this like crazy uh, surgeon. Well, even at like the very beginning, when it starts off with her like you know suturing a turkey, listening listening to Ave Maria, you know it's like late at night and she's suturing up a turkey and everything, mm-hmm. and she's doing it with like a negligee on. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, really? I mean, they, number one, that look like that look like high quality stuff. You're not going to be suturing in that kind of attire. <laughs> Gotta look sexy. You're gonna have some. You're gonna have some ratty jeans on. Gotta look sexy. <laughs> Sewn up turkey. Turkey gotta look sexy. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the other film that I saw was a 1963 British comedy called Billy Liar. Now going into this, I I didn't know really what to expect. I'm thinking a comedy from the 60s. British. British. It's it's not going to hold up well. It's not going to be my type of humor. I'm not going to be into this at all. And normally comedies, I mean, they don't have anything outside of comedy. There's nothing that really pulls you in. There's really no cinematography. There's nothing. This just blew all those expectations out of the water. Number one, the black and white cinematography is amazing. It's the best I've ever seen in a comedy, hands down. I've never seen a comedy with amazing cinematography like this. Hmm. This is something you would see like in an art house film. And it's this... The story is actually great in the sense that uh, Billy Fisher, who's played by Tom Courtney, who does a great job, is a guy, a young guy who is constantly daydreaming. So his life is a mixture of actual reality and what he's thinking about in his head. And they perfectly meld those two worlds together. So it just cuts in between both worlds, his imagination and real life, just seamlessly. And a lot of it is just really, you know, he gets pissed off at people and he acts like he's shooting them. And then it'll cut to him, you know, holding a machine gun, just mowing everyone down with bullets. And in his mind, he has like his own nation called Ambrosia, where he's like the general and he's the leader and everyone loves him. It's just the amazing life that he leads in his imagination. And in real life, he's just he works it like a, a funeral parlor. And he he's just he's really an aimless youth. It sounds like he's, the secret life of Walter Mitty. It's yes, it's pretty much exactly like that. And it's 
you can actually tell because the whole time I was watching it, and especially when it gets towards the end, I'm like, oh, this had to be a huge influence on Gervais's and Merchant's um, Cemetery Junction. Mm. It, fe- it feels a lot like that because the entire film is a comedy. Mm-hmm. And through and through, it's just him juggling the two women that he's uh, that he's in- he's engaged to both of them. It's just juggling those two. There's a thing where he was supposed to send out these calendars for the company that he works for, but he kept all the postage money and just kept the calendars like in his room. So there's that whole thing that he's got to deal with. And the whole thing is just, you know, light and fun, this and that. And then the final third, it just takes this weird turn. Not really weird. They actually do it fantastically where it just goes straight into drama. And you realize, like, they explain why he lives in his imagination. And it just really turns into a young guy who hates where he lives, hates the town that he lives in. It's a small town. He wants to get out. He wants to go to London. and But at the same time, he's afraid. He doesn't want to leave the town because it, he's not going to make it. That's what he's afraid of. Right. And it's just bizarre that with the way that they just, it turns into like a high drama type deal movie, and they do it perfectly. I mean, this movie is amazing. I absolutely loved it. Hmm. And like I said, the camera work is amazing. I mean, you usually don't see this type of camera work in a comedy. So I, I highly recommend Billy Liar. It totally surpassed all the expectations I had for it. Cool. All right. Anything else? Uh, nope. All right. Well, Done. let's go ahead and jump right into our review of Zero Charisma. Now, I know that uh, there's bunch like Captain Phillips came out this weekend and Machete Kills, but I really wanted to talk about this movie uh, because not only did we both see this movie, but I think that everybody heard of those other two, and I really want to push this because I liked it a whole lot, and I want to promote it and get people to see it. So we have a synopsis here, an overgrown nerd who serves as grandmaster of a fan... It says grandmaster, but I think it should be game master, right? I think it can be either one. Either one? Okay, well, Grandmaster of a fantasy board game finds his role as leader of the misfits put into jeopardy when a new initiate enters the group. That's just, that's a bad synopsis. <laughs> yes. It's really yes, bad. Yes, it is. It's direct- IMTP's great. <laughs> yeah, it's directed by Katie Graham and Andrew Matthews. Stars uh, Sam Edson. You have a review for for this up on the site now, so I'll start it off. I actually like this movie a lot. I, I found it incredibly funny, first of all. First and foremost, Kevin. That's right. I found That's right. it incredibly funny. There's there's so many little one-liners and, and throwaway lines and just subtle little things in this that are just so funny. Like I went, I went back and I rewatched this, and it's playing on demand right now, so you can you can check it out. And on the second one, I didn't watch the whole thing again, but I just watched bits and pieces, and some of it was just so funny. And not only that, but the characters are really relatable. When I first started watching this, I I thought of um, uh, Dark Horse and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm how it it does have a Todd silence feel. Yeah. To it. How that, how that film was like about this kind of, you know, slightly overweight kind of jerk off guy that was kind of a dick. But I, I felt like that this actually was more realistic and just 
portrayed everything more accurately and it was much more funny than Dark Horse too. Yeah. And the thing about this in comparison to that to the main character of Dark Horse is that Sam Edson's character of Scott, he's actually likable. Like he he's not he's a dick, but it's like you can kind of understand where he's coming from. You know what I mean? Yeah. He he's definitely complicated in the way that you're not exactly sure if you like him right. or if you hate him, but you do both all at the same time. Yeah, like I felt I felt very empathetic towards him because it was clear that he wasn't a bad person. Like they get that out of the way almost right off the bat when it's it's clear that he's there taking care of his grandmother and you can tell that he actually holds his friends very very dearly, but at the same time he doesn't want to let them go. So anytime anything threatens that, he instantly lashes yeah. out. Yeah. And I think it's it's funny because that's very real. Like, I mean, that happens. I think that we can all relate to some of the characters in this movie. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the main thing that really got me with this film is going into it. I, I honestly, I don't know much about D&D. You know, Dungeons and Dragons. I never played it. I really know nothing outside of ogres and wizards, goblins, and it's a tabletop game, that type of deal. And I thought that this was going to be, you know, a film just for those people. So it's sort of trepidatious going in. It's like, I, I have a feeling that I'm not going to get most of what's going on in here. But I was surprised to find, like you said, it's extremely relatable. Like, you, there's a character in here for everyone. And first and foremost, it is, it's funny. There's so many great throwaway lines. <laughs> just the way things pan out. It's it's fantastic and the the performances are amazing. Oh well, yeah, that's that's actually outside, yeah. outside of there's like there's one shoddy performance in here and I don't want to point it out because I don't want to tear that person down, but I will. It's Cindy Williams. <laughs> As the mother. I mean, you could just tell that she was acting and I hate that. I hate when you can tell someone's acting. But everyone else does a great job, especially Sam Edson who I mean, he nails his character. <laughs> yeah. Scott Wiedemeyer, he just, he fucking nails him. And, and it looks, and it honestly appears like that that character was made for him. I think it was. This is, uh, the, this was a really small production. It was all based in Austin, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it was one of those deals where this was like tailor made for him. Oh, yeah. And, and he doesn't disappoint. He nails it. He absolutely nails it. And the other, um, performance that i thought was great was it's a pretty small performance but his his grandmother oh yeah she was fantastic and angie bird was great in this film so funny i mean every line out of her just that initial scene when they're playing in the (laughs) the dining room and she comes down to make a sandwich that whole interaction was so funny and and sticking with the performances that was kind of one of the surprises that that i had was that these are all either relatively unknown actors and it's a low budget film so i was expecting the performances to be marginal at best yeah yeah exactly and so it was such a surprise when i was watching this and it was like i mean they were just like on point with every line that they delivered i mean it was just almost everybody did did a great job and i i wasn't bothered too much by the the mom i do agree that she was the weakest link in, yeah, in the it's just film, it's but. it's one of those things that just really bother. I mean, if you're going to be an actor, 
I should not be able to tell that you're acting. She looked like an old. You know, she looked like an old you know version I mean? of. Uh, yeah, she looked like an old version of Alicia Silverstone to me. And if you if you remember, she was actually in computer chess. Was she? Oh yeah, she yeah, was. Yeah. She was the weird. She was part of the weird yep, couple. Yep, they were trying yep. to get that. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. But uh, I, I was very surprised with where the plot went too. Like in the trailer, they they let you know right off the bat that it's sort of about this um, kind of persnickety game master who invites a new player in, and he then. he feels threatened by this new person who like brings beer and he's like wearing a cardigan he has nerd glasses and he's wearing a crystal castles (laughs) t-shirt and he like instantly feels threatened by this guy and i was expecting that the film would be you know the two of them at odds with each other and it does go there but there's a lot more to it than that i think that one of the things that I found so interesting was the the division between nerds. You know, like you have mm-hmm. your classic, you have your classical nerd, which is Scott, who mm-hmm. you know wears the ridiculously amazing T-shirts and like oh yeah, the mythical creatures. Yeah, and he and he like Lizards. and he listens to metal and he has you know all this. He wears like the trench coat with the fingerless, fingerless gloves. Yeah, like he's your classical nerd, and then you have the the new guy Miles who comes in, and he's like a hipster, but he's like super cool. And I think one of my favorite scenes in the film was when Scott went. And I don't, I'm not. I don't think it's a spoiler or anything. Yeah. But Scott goes to Miles's house during a party, and just the, the cuts in that where they would cut to the guy with the uh, old timey bicycle tattoo <laughs> and, then they, and then they would cut to the guy that was like playing like the loot or whatever. <laughs> and it was like just such, such a, a typical hipster party that I, I thought was so funny. And oh when you think God, about it, like yes. that's exactly what kind of happened, right? Like, the hipster, mm. the hipster nerd, kind of came in and replaced the classical nerd. Well, that, yeah, that's the thing. Like nowadays, it's it's trendy, right, to be a nerd or to you know to be a geek. Yeah, and like people try to be that way. And, you know, there's this whole original group of people that were made fun of for so many years that are just sitting there going, "What the fuck? We've been doing this for years." Yeah, and everyone made fun of us, and now you guys are trying to be like us. Yeah, and but. But then, the but those things were still there. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. whole time, you know, there were these like hipster nerds, but they made it clear from the beginning that Miles never took these guys seriously. Like he was never actually friends with them. No, but but the weird thing too is like they, from the outset they set it up that you know Scott's the real nerd, Miles is not, and they're nemesis. Mm-hmm. They're each other's nemesis. But I mean. But really, I mean, when you break it down, Niles has far more, far more information and knowledge than Scott does. Right. Like he, like he knows everything. Mm-hmm. And he seems like more of a nerd than Scott. Yeah, I think that that's that's kind of the. But the it's point just of all of it's it. just this you know this weird thing where Miles was able to turn that into like a job, and you know he actually grew up and he was able to turn it into something and Scott's still stuck it back in the old days. Right. 
And a lot of uh, a lot of the conversations that they have really kind of hit home for I know for us too, <laughs> especially about the the websites. That whole conversation where he's like, "I have a blog too." <laughs> they were like, he goes, "What did he say?" He's like, "I have fourteen visitors, yeah, fourteen a visitors week. a week," and just th- that whole interaction. I mean, that hit home. The conversation about movie critics hit home. Oh my god! The, yeah, the film criticism helped. Film critics just want to be buddy buddy with the directors nowadays. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was fantastic! It all it all hit a, definitely hit a chord with with me at least. And I love. Uh, I was just looking at my notes here, and I wrote some one word notes, and one of them was Donut Taco Palace Two. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I was hoping you would mention that because I I would have definitely forgotten this. Yes, it's called Donut. <laughs> The name of the store is Donut, but it's a Taco <laughs> Palace too. <laughs> but it's the second one, <laughs> and it's a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> oh God! I I thought <sighs> as soon as that came up on the screen, I just started laughing because that's exactly how those places are, and I love it. Mm, it almost you know it almost felt like a Jody Hill movie too, like how yeah it it did feel a lot like how that. it it felt very real in that you know this kind of strip mall comic book or game stores and stuff and there's just so many the the opening like towards the beginning you know um scott picks up wayne and (laughs) they're discussing you know he's telling about like oh you can't wait till we play the game tonight i have a huge development it's gonna be amazing try and guess what it is and, you know, he gives him some hints, and he guesses Flame Golem. And just Scott's character, the way he goes off on him and doesn't let it go, and, you know, has to walk him through how stupid of a guess that <laughs> yeah. was. And I love how at the end of that conversation, he goes, well, keep guessing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a complete dick to him, but he's like, no, keep guessing. This is fun. Just, yeah, the way, and it, like you said earlier, the you know, it does take some dark turns, and... I mean, Scott's character has a huge superiority complex. I mean, I I know for a fact that I've known several people like this where they just make up shit to look cool. Yeah. You know, for people to be like, oh, wow, you're an interesting person. And it's inherently sad. And then they take it to a whole nother level when it, uh, Scott's mom shows up, right. played yeah. by Cindy Williams. Yeah. And you find out why he's like this. And you're just immediately like, oh, my God, he had such a terrible life. Yeah. He has, like, the worst mother I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Like, when she comes down and decides to play D&D with him, and, you know, she's recounting the stories from his youth. Oh, God. Dude, I, I I would never talk to her ever again if that, you know, if that happened to me. Yeah, she... I would probably punch... That would be a time where I would punch my mother in the face. Yeah. And see, that's the thing, like, you, even though he is kind of a dick, you, you always understand where he's coming from, or like, you don't, not from the beginning, I guess, but you learn to understand where he's coming from. Yeah, and, I mean, and he's, it, he's an extremely damaged person. Right, and, and it, it goes from being, like, laughable, where you're just like, that guy's such an asshole, like, you know, no wonder nobody likes him, to you feeling sorry for him. Because yeah, and it 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 becomes very uncomfortable too. Yeah, like when he has his tirades and stuff, it's like like when he goes to Miles's house to play D and D because they can't do it at his house anymore. And his house, ha- and Miles's house is just 
amazing. Yeah. You know, it's, it's got re- vinyl records on the wall. Yeah. And 45s. And- oh, man. He's fucking showing his panels from his comic that's going to get published and shit. And just there's that beautiful scene where they just show Scott sobbing in the bathroom. Yeah. Before they play D&D. And you're just like, oh, man, this is not going to end well. This poor guy. And it doesn't. No. It doesn't end well at no, all. No, it doesn't. Well, uh... I, I was just completely surprised, yeah, honestly. I, I think... I mean, we we wanted to see this at uh, South by Southwest. And unfortunately, we didn't because, you know, the handicap accessible taxis don't exist in Austin. So we missed it. And here we are talking about it now. And I really wish that we got to see it yeah, back Yeah, that's then. exactly what I was going to say. I, I really... I, I, dude, I think we would we would have been just beaming about this film. I know. I, I'm really... It, it really sucks. Because, I mean, this is an Austin production, too. And everybody was there. And it would have been... Yeah, we. I mean, we saw Sam Edson how many times? <laughs> he was everywhere. He was fucking everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I really wish we would have had a chance to, to go see it and talk to some of these people. Because... I I think that probably that would have been one of my favorite like indies that oh, definitely. were coming definitely. out of the fe- that festival because if it, yeah if I put it like if I try and inter- interject this into the films that we saw when we were outside by Southwest this would definitely be one like one of the highest yeah and I'm like it you know like homegrown indie films yeah I'm not from, yeah I'm not counting like the bigger yeah stuff Spring Breakers yeah. that type of thing this would have definitely been top of the list yeah I, I thought it was fantastic and it was just it was so funny i mean that's that's what i really want to reiterate that it was funny and even if you're not into fantasy role-playing games and stuff like that yeah that's the big the other thing. thing the other thing too is that there are a bunch of movies that that have come out within the last few years that kind of tackle dungeons and dragons or larping or different nerdy fantasy type things that people are into but this one does it in a much less exploitive way. Like, um, yeah, in like, the, yeah, in, it's in really it's, easy to just sit back and make fun of those people right. and be like, oh, look how stupid they are. But they, this film actually gives them depth, right? And I think that if you're into if you're into this role playing, like tabletop games, stuff like that, I think that you would like this movie. Whereas I feel like. Some of the other movies that have come out, I think that you'd maybe feel offended by some of the other ones. Mm. And with this one, I think that it really does cater towards people that are into those things as well. And I mean, yes, I'm not... I would I, definitely agree. I, I never played Dungeons & Dragons, and I never played any of those tabletop role-playing games. So I can't speak to that aspect of the movie, but at the same time... Uh, the my interests and stuff are very close to that area, you know. Like, and I have I have to say, there's one thing that I really learned from this film, and there's actually a part where uh, Scott Whittemire's character discusses it a little bit. You know, this is a a story that's captured his friend's attention for three years. Right. Yeah. Like they keep coming to his house to play this game, like. That's fucking impressive. Oh yeah, like I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a story to entertain my friends for like three days, let alone three years. Are you kidding? Well, me? that's the other thing that that we should mention. It's not Dungeons and Dragons that they're playing. They do mention D and D several times throughout the movie, but this is actually a game that Scott created. Yeah, it's it, it, 
it's essentially Dungeons and Dragons, but the story is his own. Yeah. The adventure is his story, which doing a little bit of research is that like, that's how it started out. Yeah. I think that, uh, and then they would get published and then other people would play that guy's story and this and that. And it, like that really surprised me. Like to me, that's extremely impressive. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the draws to Dungeons and Dragons is that it is kind of a, a more creative outlet for a lot of people. Like it's not, and they they actually get into it in in the movie when they're interviewing the one person. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Talks, you know, he's talking about you know the art of storytelling yeah. and this and that, and I'm like, you know what? I see where you're coming from. Yeah, he the they interview somebody and that person says that they play world of warcraft and they basically lose it <laughs> uh, I, I do i god damn i love that scene yeah. where he just fucking loses it and the way that he tears into world of warcraft is just perfect because all i could think of is uh the south park episode and just the image of cartman <laughs> sitting there playing world of warcraft <laughs> oh god so yeah, any final thoughts on Zero Charisma? I I I can't really express how much I was surprised by this film. Like I thought it would be decent, you know, I would chuckle here and there. Yeah. But I I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Yeah. Thoroughly, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, same same here. I think that it's definitely worth seeing, even if you're not into tabletop gaming or anything like that there, yeah, there's so I, much you, there's so much more to it than than that like, yeah like we said at the beginning i mean there's there's so many things going on here that are completely relatable yeah absolutely. I, I mean it falters a little bit here and there especially towards the end but overall it's solid solid film yeah and, th- and this is uh this is a first time director too andrew matthews this is his, his first movie so and and uh and katie, katie graham. graham yeah they, they apparently the only thing they worked on together before this was best worst movie, and where they um, were like cinematographers and editors. Yeah, was it? Did they work? They worked on the American. Did Andrew work on American Scream as well? I don't think Andrew did. I think it was just Katie. Because I know that American Scream and uh, Best Worst Movie okay. were the same director. Okay, no, they were both. Well, okay, Katie was an editor on Best Worst Movie. Andrew was an editor on Best Worst Movie and American Scream. Katie, Katie was a cinematographer for both films. Yeah. So that's where the background is. Yeah, so I would also recommend checking out both of those documentaries, too, because they're both really good. Solid debut, though. Yeah. The only thing is, I, I hope that, the, you know, this feels like a film that's very close to home. Right. So they nailed it, and everything outside of that might not be... Well, you know... Yeah, that it, I could. Well, it, it remains to be seen, but we've seen that numerous times before. I will say that if if they had creative input with American Scream and Best Worst Movie, though, that's that's a good that's a good lineup. I mean, those three films, I, I thoroughly enjoyed all three of them. And the and the interesting thing about all three of those movies is that they're all very uh, character centric. Like they're they're really focused on who these people are and stuff. And even though mm. the the other two are documentaries, it still focuses on like the people involved and yeah, it sort of, tick. I, I I get the feeling I haven't seen the two documentaries, but I have a feeling that it that that translate the, the just the very um, you know, sort of 
humane way of showing these right, people. Yes. You know, you know, and not like making them a punchline. Yeah, and that's exactly what those two movies do. I mean, best worst movies about the the cast of Troll Two, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is fantastic. Yes. And American Scream is about people that ha- that do home haunts during Halloween. Yes. And they're both very interesting, and I recommend checking them out. So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely. I mean, this is. I have a feeling that this is going to be a big cult movie. It has it, to be. It, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it was it was funded by Indiegogo by people that play D and D. You know, so they already have the audience right there. They're the ones that funded it. Yeah, I think that this will definitely be go down as as a cult classic. It, it's it has to. I think it's just it's deserving of I, that. I have to say I'm extremely happy that I made the decision to rent this and review it for the site. Yeah. Very happy. Well, there you have it. Zero Charisma. Go check it out. It's playing in select cities now and video on demand. So definitely watch this one. It's well worth it. Yes, definitely. Let's talk about some predictions, shall we? Let's do it. Captain Phillips. I said 87. You said 79. Ernie said 82. Actual eighty five or ninety five, sorry. Wow. Ninety five on Captain Phillips. I I definitely felt that that would come down. Yeah, so did I, actually. S- staying strong. I think that uh, that definitely has some Oscar potential. No, oh, definitely. And that also means that I have to watch it. It's good. Damn you'll it. you'll like it. I think. It's it's very good. Uh, Machete Kills, I said 35, you said 32, Ernie said 60, actual 30. Nice. That's one for you, one for me. Next week, we have a huge week next week. Now, I I don't, I didn't like really look into all of this to see if all of these were hitting wide release. My my (laughs) suspicion would be no, they're not, but we're going to go ahead and predict them anyway because a lot of them are, are some big releases. First up, we have Kill Your Darlings, which is the... Well, with Daniel Radcliffe and Dane DeHaan, and there's a ton of people in this. I take it, are you interested in this, Kevin? Seems like one you'd be slightly interested in. I am slightly interested in it, yes, I am. Big fan of uh, Ginsburg and, is it Faulkner? No. Who, no, no, not Faulkner. No, <laughs> Kerouac. Kerouac, that's right, Kerouac. Was it, uh, yeah, it's pretty much, I think, most of the beat generation. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm a big fan of Ginsburg. So, Kevin, what are you thinking on Kill Your Darlings? Uh, Kill Your Darlings. I'm going to say a 77. 77? Okay. Um, hmm. I think I'm going to say 79. I think it'll be pretty good. Looks good. And I don't know the story. Like, do you, do you know, like, the whole... What, what? I don't... Yeah, I don't even know what the hell it's about. It's about, like, their their relationship with each other, and then there's a murder involved. Oh, okay, so it's but I don't know. based on that, um, I forget what that book's called, something about a hippo boiling something. I'm not sure. All right, then we have Carrie. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, here's what I'm hoping, and I think from the trailer, it looks like they are going to go further with it, but, like, the whole point of Carrie was that ending, you know? Like, that was the big surprise. That was the big thing at the end. Yeah. With that, with people knowing that ending, where are they going to go with it? Like, this is kind of the same question I have about the Old Boy remake. Like, <laughs> where are they going to go with it? Yeah. It, I, it's, I have a strong suspicion that it's just going to fail completely. Yeah, I am interested to see it. I, 
honestly, I was never a huge fan of Carrie to begin with. Like, I did find Carrie to be scary when I saw her when I was younger, but I was just never a huge fan of the story. So I'm yeah. going to say, like, 57 on this one. I'm going to say a 52. And then we have Escape Plan. Oh, yeah, this buddy. The big Stallone Schwarzenegger picture. Nice. What are you thinking on Escape Plan? Oh, <laughs> what am I thinking? <laughs> I am thinking like a 55. 55? That's pretty high. I'm going to say like 40. I'm, I'm going to think, you know, like for what it is, I have a feeling it's going to be decent. Even though 50 Cent is in it. Yeah. I think it's going to be, it's going to be okay. I honestly don't think with, by having 50 Cent in a movie, it automatically brings it down. Like I, I, I do. <laughs> I do. I do. I, I swear there was a movie that he was in that I liked, but I can't remember what it was. I'm going to look it up right now. Was it Real Steel? I didn't know he was in that, but I did like Real Steel. Apparently he was in Real Steel. Um, he was not in much else. Mm, okay, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I was just making that up then. <laughs> and we have The Fifth Estate. This is the oh, God. Benedict Cumberbatch, Julian Assange movie now there are early reviews out for this and it's not getting very good reviews so yeah it i it honestly looks terrible i'm gonna say i'm I'm gonna say 40 42 oh you son of a bitch that's exactly what i was going for um i'm gonna say 40 40 okay and then finally no not finally then we have all is lost this is the robert redford one that i'm actually pretty excited about I am as well. This looks pretty good. Yeah, what are you thinking on this one? I'm thinking like a 79. I'm going high on this one, and I'm going to say 90. 90? I think it's, it's going to be really, really big. And finally, 12 Years a Slave. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say 92 on this one. Oh, my God. I'm going to go 95. I'm so excited. Huge week. Like I, I, I'm excited. I don't think that all of those can be hitting wide release, but hopefully, <laughs> I know that I'm, not, I myself am not going to be able to see Twelve Years of Sleep until October 25th. I know that for a fact. Okay. That that will be the earliest that I'll be able to see it. That's when it opens at the Charles. Mm. I have a feeling that it's not going to come anywhere around me. Probably true. Probably true. I'm going to do the old uh, road trip to Baltimore to see a movie. Well, you know, if it's a movie worth seeing... You're damn right I'm going. Yeah. But then again, things that are coming around to me are The Fifth Estate for some fucking reason, Escape Plan, and Carrie. So I can easily see those pieces of shit. <laughs> but 12 Years a Slave. No, can't see, can't see that one. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. Limited release, we have Haunter. That's the Vincenzo Natale one that we were able to see in Austin. Go back and listen to an earlier episode oh, of the podcast. We interview him. Definitely. Check that out. One of the best interviews we've ever done. Yeah, yeah that was when we weren't too good at interviewing. <laughs> well, he didn't give us too much no, to work with no, either. Definitely agree with it's, that. It's, uh, it's definitely 50-50. I would say so, yeah. We also have Paradise, which is the Diablo Cody one that I've heard horrible things about. Well, you said the words Diablo Cody, so... <laughs> 
<laughs> right there explains why you've heard terrible. She things. directed that one, so I think oh, that's her. Even, even, even yeah, worse. Yeah, I think that's her directorial debut. It looks really bad. But, uh, Chinese Zodiac, which is finally coming out here in the states. This is the Jackie Chan one. I heard Jackie Chan still. Yeah, huh? he's still still plugging away. And big ass spider. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna watch that? I I don't you're know. T- yeah, you're gonna watch it. I don't know if it's I, I don't do. know if it's hitting VOD as well. I didn't see it at all. I, I, I was. I really hope it does. I want you to see it, and I want to know what you think. I might. Ch- I also want to point out that Oliver Platt is in Chinese Zodiac. Yeah, yeah, he is. That's great. That's great. That's the one. The only thing I remember about that trailer is that the it's the one where he puts on like the rollerblade suit and like goes down there's like an action scene where he's wearing a rollerblade suit it sounds like national treasure but chinese could be it looks pretty ridiculous i'm not that interested in it uh next week on video on demand we have the mirror uh, two jacks which i don't know too much about that i did like a brief looked it up briefly it doesn't look very good uh haunter and the other me the other me the other me Okay. I forget that I forget what that like one's a, about too. Sounds like a week week week. Yeah, it is a week week. DVD and Blu-ray releases, we have The Colony. I heard terrible things about that, so I'd say skip it. The Heat, I would recommend checking that out if you haven't. Yes. Even though I was I wasn't very big on it, but I think it is still worth a rental. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, a hijacking which Ernie talked about last week on the show. Yeah, I've been wanting to see that one. Yeah, I'm interested in that as well. Maniac, which is the the remake, the Alexander Aja produced remake. I would recommend checking that out. If you're a horror fan, that's probably going to be one of the best horror movies of the year. I would say it's pretty intense. Pacific Rim, which is a big one. I'd recommend that as well. I can't wait to see that on my 32-inch TV. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. Got to get that DVD copy. Oh, fuck yeah. (laughs) 480 480p you're damn right 32 inch mm. nice <laughs> volume set low with subtitles on <laughs> let's do this oh, i love the way you watch things <laughs> johnny toe's drug war also comes out and i definitely recommend that and yes I, yeah i want i really want to see that one yeah you'll like it i, I mean i haven't seen a johnny toe since the high school days yeah, and it's it is very much a Johnny Toe movie. Like that's, when you that's watch what it, I hear. yeah, when you watch it, you're just like, "Yep, this is this is definitely Johnny Toe." I might wait until you come into Pennsylvania again. We might have to get that one. Yeah, I'll be up. Do a, throw, do a throwback. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We could have a Johnny Toe marathon. Oh my god, I like the sound of that. <laughs> it'd be a, it'd be a lot of movies. It'd be tough to pick out which ones to watch because he. Had, oh, we did. We got to do like just an Asian marathon. I'm I am do definitely some AK? Down. Yeah, I'm definitely down. Uh, uh, let's do it. And finally we have Chad Crawford Kinkle's Jug Face, which I know you weren't into that one, but I was. So check I, check that yeah, out. Yeah, I ma- I made it like ten minutes. I'm also seeing Birdemic two here. Oh, is that is that on the list? I didn't see that. Yeah. I don't know if it's coming out on Blu ray. I hope it is. Well, that's a movie that demands a Blu ray watch. <laughs> Without a doubt. Any others? Any others? Uh, I know that I, there's uh, we a big, have one big criterion. We have one. Yeah, we have one criterion coming out this week, which is Eyes Without a Face, 
Uh, which have you seen? No, I still haven't seen it. You you need to see this. I know it's probably going to be on my Halloween this, watch list. This this film is great. Definitely check this out. It's a classic horror film. You know, doctor obsessed, obsessed with uh, radical plastic surgery to restore the beauty of his daughter's disfigured face. Oh man, this is great. Got to check this one out. Yeah. Anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Except Birdemic 2. Check that out. Yeah, let me reiterate. Birdemic 2, The Resurrection. The Resurrection, which I did see. Did Oh, that's right, you did. I can't wait to see it. It's pretty it's pretty rough. Oh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Yeah. All right. Why all... why would I mean Birdemic 2 gets a sequel? Well, Birdemic gets a sequel. Where's The Room 2? I don't know. I'm hoping that that comes what, out like, at some what's, point. What's he doing? I just saw something about the room. I don't remember what it was. I just read something like there's a comic book or something that they oh. came out with for the room. That would be awesome. Yeah. All right. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. My name is Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. Cough it out. Cough it out. Something. I had like a little tickle.